This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. And now, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. We're looking this evening at verses 12 and 13. Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13. We'll begin reading in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. We ask that you will sanctify us by the truth of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In these last uh, couple of chapters, uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4, the writer of the Hebrews has been exhorting his readers uh, in a couple of ways. On the one hand, he exhorts them to be on guard against a hardened heart. Now, we talked a good deal about a hardened heart this morning, as uh, apparently was Pharaoh's defining characteristic, judging by how many times that's referred to in the Scriptures. But it's not just Pharaoh who can have a hardened heart heart. Uh, He's very much concerned that uh, the same kinds of things experienced by even Israel in the Old Testament, uh, those who came out of Egypt, those who were the victims of Pharaoh's hardened heart and themselves developed hardened hearts, that this not happen to his own readers. That kind of a heart is characterized as you look at uh, verses chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, characterized by unbelief. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Uh, And again, um, in verse 19, we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Uh, A hardened heart is characterized by being deceived, by deception. Look at verse 13. He says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A sign of a hardened heart is that it has been deceived by sin. It's no longer concerned about sin. It takes sin lightly. It begins to indulge sin. It begins to excuse, to rationalize sin. Well, it's no big deal. Well, this is under control. Well, whatever. It begins to tolerate sin. So unbelief, deception, hardened heart is characterized by disobedience. Verse 18 Whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So all of these things uh, are are warning signs of a heart that is hardening or that has become hardened. Unbelief, lack of faith and confidence in God's word, deception about our own state, our own sin. Which, by the way, when someone comes to you and is concerned about something in your life, our first impulse is to say, well, they're mistaken, they're wrong. 
or they're just way off base in, in speaking to me. We need to take that seriously because we need to take seriously the power of sin to deceive. Deception, by definition, means you are unaware of the blindness of your condition. So all of those things are part of hardened heart and then just rank disobedience. Um, but then he also exhorts them, as we saw in, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, not only to be on guard against a hardened heart and unbelief and deception and so on, which is negative, but positively to make every effort to enter God's rest. And again, the, the, the picture here is that of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, who, because of their hardness of heart and unbelief, disobedience, did not enter in. But then he says, for us, we need to make every effort to enter into God's rest, just like they did. We've had good news come to us. Their good news was their deliverance from Egypt. It was God's promise of a, of a beautiful land that he was going to give them, he would lead them into. Uh, yet, because of their unbelief, they didn't inherit it. But we've had good news come to us as well. And that good news is the gospel of Jesus. That we have not Moses, but Jesus, who is our Redeemer, our Savior, our Leader, our King, who leads us out of our captivity. And there remains a rest for us. Uh, and as he describes it, he does so in terms of uh, Old Testament pictures. Uh, God's rest in verse 4. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. We share in him in that rest. The land of Canaan itself, verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, uh, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Well, he did give them rest of a sort uh, when they came into the promised land, when they finished the conquest, or at least to the degree that they did. They didn't wipe out all the inhabitants as God had told them to, and they were influenced negatively by them. Uh, but they did have rest of a sort, but it was not the ultimate rest that God had in mind. Same rest that's typified by the Sabbath day, now, whether you look at it in terms of the seventh day of the week under the old covenant, reflecting God's rest, or now in the new covenant, the first day of the week, pointing to, back toward Christ's resurrection, but then forward to the rest that we have in him. And so he ends with an exhortation, as we saw last time. Verse 11, let us therefore strive, make every effort to enter that rest, the rest of salvation in Christ, the rest of that eternal inheritance, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. As Paul said to the Corinthians regarding what happened to Israel in the wilderness, those things happened as an example to us. We should read those accounts in the Old Testament and be warned. Just because of their, as with their unbelief, they didn't enter God's salvation, didn't enter rest, that uh, we too need to be careful, guard our hearts, do everything we can to make sure that we are in Christ, that we have that salvation. Uh, on the one hand, certainly that we don't just outright reject it, but that we also are not deceived about our true condition, that we really do possess that salvation. The writer of Hebrews will talk about that more as we go on. Well, now we come then to the text I want us to concentrate on tonight, and that's verses 12 and 13. Now, the first verse, verse 12, really tells us a truth about God's Word. It tells us truth about God's Word. The second verse, verse 13, tells us truth about ourselves in light of God's Word. So first, verse 12, or verse 11, rather, sorry, verse 12, the truth of God's Word. Notice the first word, it begins with the word for. That's why I read verse 11, because verse 12 
points back to it. The writer sees what he's saying in verses 12 and 13 is connected with what went before. In fact, he bases his exhortation in verse 11 on verses 12 and 13. Let us make every effort to enter that rest so that you won't fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active. So there's a connection. What is the connection? Well, it's this. Their disobedience in the Old Testament was disobedience to a word and instruction that was spoken to them. And not just any word, but the word of God. God's word cannot be disbelieved and disobeyed with impunity. Precisely because it's God's word. Pharaoh discovers that the hard way. God's speaking is never without effect, and that's the connection. You know, if they ignore the words of another human being, they may or may not suffer for it. But if they disbelieve and disobey God's word, they do so to their own peril. Make every effort to enter that rest so that you don't fall in disobedience because the word of God is what it is. So that's the connection. That's why he begins it with four. Now he goes on to explain why this is so. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God, he says, is living. In the Greek, it's, it's just straight way, literally, the word zoe, like the name, zoe, 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 uh, which means, I told, I told Zoe, Laura, that we were going to mention her name in the service tonight. Uh, but it means life. Uh, the, the, the study of life is zoology. Many of you have been to a zoological park known, in short, as a zoo. Uh, but that's the word he uses. And actually, it's the first word in the sentence, the way that the writer writes it, which gives it a certain emphasis. Living is the word of God. He emphasizes that point. God's word is alive. It's living. It's no dead letter. It's vital and living precisely because it's God's word. You know, First Samuel chapter 3, we read of uh, the Lord's blessing on Samuel and his ministry. And it says the Lord did not let any of his words drop to the ground. That's a kind of an interesting way to put it, but we understand immediately what he means. That nothing Samuel spoke just fell flat. Nothing Samuel spoke just fell on the ground dead and inert and, 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 and producing no effect, having no meaning, having no point to it. Well, in the same way, God's word doesn't just fall to the ground. God's word is living and alive. He also says it's active. Uh, and here the word, uh, our word energy comes from, hence the, si- the, the title of the sermon, the energetic word of God. You see, God's word is more than mere sound. When God speaks, it accomplishes things. You're familiar with Isaiah 55, that great reference that speaks about his word. It says, the Lord says, so shall my word be. That goes from my mouth, that shall not return to me empty, it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So there's there's an activeness to it, there's an energy to God's word that accomplishes what he wants it to accomplish. Now, for Samuel, when he's speaking God's word, or for us, in the preaching or teaching of God's word, or speaking to another uh, person about the gospel, uh, there is power there, precisely because we're, we're speaking God's word after him. We're telling people what God's word says. 
But our words in and of themselves don't have this living quality, this active, energetic nature that God's word does, at least not in any way near the same sense. For example, I can't call into being something that doesn't exist. I can try to, but it's not going to happen. I just can't do it. God can speak and a universe comes into being out of nothing. Simply by his speaking it, saying it is to be so, and it is. My words can't do that. God's words can. I can't call someone out of a tomb. I can talk to the corpse, but the corpse won't talk back. The corpse won't do anything. Nothing will happen. Jesus can say into a tomb, Lazarus, come forth. And the man comes forth. Death is removed. Life is restored. And he's able to walk out of the tomb. Jesus can do that. You and I can't. So our words don't have that same quality of life, that same energy. They're active the way that God's word does. That's why we disobey God's word to our peril. Now, he goes on to describe God's word as sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, much has been made of that. Why a two-edged sword? Maybe the writer just thought two-edged swords were cool. There may be no more meaning to it than that. Some have gone to great lengths. Well, it's the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is. Well, maybe it is, but he doesn't say that. Uh, If there is any significance to the fact that it's a two-edged sword and not just a one-edged sword... It may be this. No matter which way you swing it, it cuts. It doesn't have a blunt edge. It cuts regardless of whichever way it goes. It never fails to cut. Now, if you do want to assign some meaning to that, you think about how God's word is always active. You say, well, I've been witnessing this guy for years and there's there's nothing there. It's not having any effect. Is it not? Well, maybe God is giving you the ministry of Isaiah toward that person. Your ministry is simply to confirm him in his sin. Hard thought. You don't want to rest on that. You don't don't assume that. You always pray and assume and trust that God is going to use his word to bring salvation. But God's word also cuts in the other way of confirming and hardening someone in sin, in their unbelief. That's a, a horrible thing to think about. But that's what God's word does. Paul says that. And he says, the word of God, the word of Christ is the stench of death to those who are perishing, but the fragrance of life to those who are being saved. It always has its effect on you, either to strengthen you in God's grace or to harden you in your sin. Remember what we said this morning, what Romans 9 says, God uh, saves whom he will save and he hardens whom he will harden. His mercy on whom he wills and hardens those that are under his judgment. So it may be that this two-edged nature of it means that it may cut in a way that brings salvation. It may cut in a way that brings judgment, but either way it cuts. It's always uh, having its effect. But he also goes on to say that while an ordinary two-edged sword might cut the body, God's word cuts into the deepest recesses of human being and personality. That's the point of those words, those divisions, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, things that he sees as being so close together. God's word has that, that precision, that sharp edge. 
Being able to cut to those things. In other words, the whole of our being, physical, spiritual, is involved when we encounter the Word of God. Or, to be more precise, when God's Word encounters us. And what does it do when it penetrates so deeply? Well, he says it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word discerning has the idea of evaluating, even judging, uh, rendering an assessment of. And that's what God's word does. When it pierces into us, it evaluates, it passes judgment, it assesses our deepest levels of awareness, even unawareness, even the subconscious Examines our motives, examines our attitudes. You know, what is, what's deeper, what's more intangible than those levels of thought, some of which we may not even be aware of ourselves, and yet God's Word is. You know, sort of, sort of sheds light on what the Scriptures tell us when, when God says that to Samuel that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We think, well, God just sees, sees what I'm thinking. Well, yeah, that's true. It is true. But he sees what you're not thinking. He sees attitudes and the deepest levels of motivation and reaction that you yourself might, might not even be aware of. He sees more deeply into us and knows us more deeply than we do ourselves. And God's word operates, certainly on the conscious level, to be sure. But it can also pierce deeply into levels of our mentality that we're not even really aware of. So that God's word certainly operates as we consciously think about it. But the exposure to God's word also may operate on levels that we're not really even aware of. The flip side of that, the dark side of that, is other things that we expose ourselves to may operate in our psyche, in our soul, at a level we're not aware of as well, in in harmful ways, in negative and evil ways. But God's word penetrates, it pierces, uh, as he says, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. I like the way uh, one commentator on Hebrews, uh, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, puts it. He says it's here in this radical center of human selfhood that the word of God does its work. And that is why the sword of the spirit, which the Christian is given to wield, is the most powerful weapon in the whole universe. Because God's word does that on us. But it also does that in those to whom we might minister. When you teach children, when you teach adults, when you have a conversation with somebody and share God's word with them, you don't know at what level God's word is ministering, piercing, penetrating, to have its effect in due time, whether that effect is to lead to salvation or merely to confirm in sin. So the first thing he talks about here is the truth about God's word and tells us these things. And then in verse 13, in light of that, the truth about us. What does this mean for us? Well, in verse 13, he talks about that. Verse 13 is an inference from verse 12. If all that verse 12 says about God's word is true, then verse 13 follows. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Well, this verse basically tells us three things. Number one, you can't hide from God. No creature is hidden from his sight. Why does he say that? I mean, God just sees us all and he can even see little germs and bacteria, microbes. Well, true, no creature is hidden from his sight. But why does he say that? Because the first impulse of sin is to do what? 
to hide it. To hide it. This is why so much of evil takes place under cover of night. There's something about sin that wants to hide itself. Remember what happened with Adam and Eve. No sooner have they disobeyed God than they hear the Lord coming and they hide. Nobody had to teach them to do that. They were embarrassed. They were ashamed. And so the very first thing they do is hide. Proverbs 28.1 tells us, The wicked flee when no one's pursuing. There's a lot of insight in that short little verse. The rest of it says, But the righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no one's pursuing. Why? Because their guilt makes them want to hide. Their guilt makes them assume people may be on to them. And they, they run, they hide, they flee. But actually no one's even pursuing. It's just their own guilt, their own desire to hide. We want to hide. And from people we might be able to hide, but not from God. It doesn't work. No creature's hidden from his sight. Remember when President Bush said of uh, Osama bin Laden, you can run, but you can't hide. No, really. Well, the truth is they can't hide, and they may be found eventually, but possibly not. But no matter how successful they may be hiding in the long, from the long arm of the United States, they can never hide from God. But neither can we. Second thing this verse tells us, not only can we not hide, but the, the flip side, the positive side of that is God sees it all. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. Now, you live every day utterly open and exposed before God. There's nothing about you he doesn't see, nothing about you he doesn't know. Now, that may make you somewhat uncomfortable. It should. But it also should be reassuring that God knows you better than anyone else knows you, and yet he loves you in Christ. He's given you Christ. You've believed in Jesus, and he accepts you. He welcomes you. But at the same time, it should make us a little bit uncomfortable. We're naked, we're exposed, nothing hidden before the Lord. Third thing he tells us in verse 13, we're accountable to God for all that God sees in us, to whom we must give account. You see, it's not as though God is some sort of cosmic voyeur just looking at us and silently moving on. The information that he gathers is information that we have to give an account to him for that we are responsible to him for, that for which we will have to answer. It's information, it's evidence uh, that we are accountable to him for. Sin, yes, is paid for by the cross of Christ. And uh, this isn't for the believer in terms of our salvation, but for those who are not believers, for those who pretend to be believers but are not, uh, the day of being exposed is, is very real. And even as Christians, as Paul teaches, we will give an account to God and answering to God as stewards. Not that our salvation depends on it, uh, but uh, there is evaluation. So we're aware of that. Can't hide from God. He sees it all. And we're answerable to him for what he sees in our lives. That needs to remind us to be very diligent, careful in watching our hearts, watching how we live. Discussing this, we were having this conversation recently with somebody asked this question. If you were saved by works, would it change how you live? If it would, then you're presuming, at least to some degree, on God's grace. Remember, God sees it, and we are answerable to him. 
So how is God's energetic word at work in your life? What's it doing in your life right now? Well, for us, God's word is the scriptures, the Bible. That's where God's word is recorded for us. And the power of God's word, just as he spoke it, is, is still with his word in the recorded scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's here where God speaks to us. What's it saying to you? What's it doing in your life? Well, we need to be in the Word. We need to have the Word in us so that these dynamics are at work. And there's a lot of ways that that is accomplished. It's accomplished through the preaching of the Word. Dr. Confessions say, especially through the preaching of the Word, through teaching of the Word, through our own reading of the Word. Meditating on the Word, which is just thinking about it, pondering it, mulling it over and over. Memorizing the Word, which is I, I kind of see as a subset of meditating on it, as a way of going over and over it, word by word, getting it in us. Are these ways of exposure to God's Word at work in your life? Are you putting yourself in that place where you hear God's Word in the Scripture so that it does have these effects? On us, so that it's at work in us. Not only that, but individually, and we as a church need to be confident in God's word, not as some sort of magical talisman, some charm, just throw it at people and it makes them into Christians, but in the confidence of the truth of Scripture to be at work in the lives of those whom we would like to see come to know the Lord, or who we would like to see grow up in the knowledge of Christ. Emphasis just on ordinary means of grace ministry. Not anything fancy, not anything humanly clever, but just relying on the truth of God's word to have its effect, to do its work in the human heart. Our hearts, the hearts of our children, the hearts of those that we know and love and care about and want to see come to know the Lord and want to see grow to maturity in Christ. So have confidence in God's living and active, God's energetic word to do its work in us, in our church, and in others. Let's pray. Father, we love your word. We thank you for it. We thank you for the work that it's doing in our lives, the work that it has done, is doing in this church, and yet will do. Father, we are uncomfortable to know how well you know us, and yet, Lord, at the same time, we are thankful that you accept us fully in Jesus, that Jesus has paid for all the sin, you've clothed us in his righteousness, that our standing with you is secure. Father, we pray that you would show us those things that you see in our lives that displease you. By your grace, we would put those things to death, keep our hearts from becoming hard. Lord, keep our hearts always soft and warm and receptive toward you. Even things that are hard to be aware of, hard to hear, uh, Lord, as you expose them to us, that we might repent of them and turn from them. Father, we pray that your word would have its due effect in our hearts, in our children's hearts, Lord, that they would know you, that the gospel would never just be something old hat to them because they've grown up with it, but they would come to them with fresh power and truth and vitality. And, Father, in this church, that through your word, you would build us up, make us strong, bring life. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.